Uh, today, my guest is Professor Jennifer Etzel. I will keep my introduction short to maximize our time with her. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Jennifer as a person, Professor Etzel as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I will skip many of her accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Etzel is the 2018 Emerald Literati Award winner for her paper at Multinational Business Review, received the Best Paper Award at European International Business Association meeting in 2016, the Best Paper Award at AOM meetings in 2015, and uh, she was a finalist for Haynes Prize for the Most Promising Scholar at 2009 AIB conference. She sits on the editorial boards of SMJ, JIPS, Journal of International Business Policy, and Journal of World Business. And she's an active AIB member and has served as a session chair, contract chair in several AIB annual conferences. And she was a co-organizer of the Doctor Consortium at uh, 2016 AIB. Thank you, Jennifer, for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Elgas. Nice to be here. Uh, Jennifer, what did you want to become when you were a child? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny. I, I think the first uh, the first thought I had was a big rock star. <laughs> <laughs> but well, you, you have to sing and play an instrument. So that that kind of uh, makes that very difficult for me. But I went to a concert where the where you two actually opened up for the police. They were the opening band. If you can imagine when I was 14. And uh, yeah, it doesn't get better than that. But I unfortunately had to choose something else. And um, where did you grow up? I grew up in a couple of different places. I, I lived in a suburb of Chicago until I was about uh, nine. And then we moved north of Chicago for a couple of years and then moved to a very small town outside of Austin, Texas. And that was uh, certainly one of the biggest cultural changes I ever had. So. <laughs> and uh, can you remember the difference uh, between domestic versus uh, international as a child? Sure. Uh, I think the earliest memory I have of that is when uh, my dad always got the N National Geographic and he loved talking about other countries and he knew, always knew who the leader was in every country. But it was funny because he never uh, really wanted to travel at all. So <laughs> despite this, you know, intense interest he had, he didn't really have a lot of interest in traveling. Uh, but we did move around quite a bit. And then I, I was fascinated just by how different the culture is in the United States. And it just made, uh, you know, and because of, I guess, that initial family interest, I, I was always curious about how people did things in different places and kind of this international versus domestic differences. Interesting. How do you choose academia? Uh, let's see. Well, it took a... a you know, a lot of thinking, but I'd always been, I always uh, enjoyed school and I, particularly in college, and I had a great professor who was uh, an economic development uh, expert, and he, uh, he had worked in India for 30 years, but he talked a lot about, you know, I mean, he was very inspirational as a professor, and so I thought, you know, this is kind of brings together my interest in international and, and economic development. How do you improve the lives of other people uh, in less developed countries? And then I guess the academic part came later as a trial and error, trying different things, different ways of addressing, uh, trying to re, you know, get into that field of economic development, and then thinking about whether should it be an NGO, uh, should should I work for government, how should I approach this, and 
when I was doing my master's degree in urban planning at University of Texas in Austin, I uh, met several professors. I worked in the business school and I was amazed at how the range of topics that they were studying. And I really saw that as an excellent fit for me and which I hadn't considered before. You know, I thought about getting a PhD in economics, um, but then that really, that really changed my mind and, and people there were, were very helpful and kind of, uh, you know, helping guide me towards the PhD program. And so that was fantastic. Yeah. Who was your advisor? Uh, my advisor at University, of, I went for my master's at University of Texas at Austin and then did my PhD at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, where I worked with Rich Bettis. And okay. he was a great advisor and definitely made a big difference in my career. Sure. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people find would find interesting. Oh, I love to be outdoors and I, uh, this summer I'm, well, there's 58 mountains in Colorado that are above 14,000 feet. And this summer I'm going to climb, uh, my objective <laughs> is to climb the tallest, although it's not the most difficult, but it's the tallest at 14,400 and change uh, feet. And so that's one of the things I'm going to do. I think I, I like Colorado because it's a uh, it's a kind of opposite my personality a bit. People, uh, you know, are very relaxed about work and they, you know, take it easy and they have uh, powder days where nobody works if it snows. And so uh, that's completely opposite of me. So it's good. It's a good change occasionally. And when you say mountain climbing, this is, we're talking about with ropes, uh, you're scaling them up. No, oh. luckily I don't do that, but I, I, it's hiking. Luckily it's all hiking. So. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay um, if you stop doing what you're doing today what's the second best alternative career path for you well the, the other thing i'd always thought about doing was to work in the field as a development uh, expert i guess i had when i was thinking about what to do and I, I knew that i wanted to pursue a phd but when i was in an undergraduate i would look through the back of the economist all the time and say oh my gosh that job sounds so great but all of them you know required a phd and so I thought that would be a fabulous career. You can travel all over the world, work on development projects. Uh, and I think just later on in my life, I realized that I didn't want, I wanted to have a family and didn't want to travel quite that much. Some people are gone, you know, weeks or months at a time. And so I, mm. I think that was a big factor in not going in that direction. Oh, yeah. Uh, about regrets, uh, have you got any regrets? I can't say that I have any regrets, uh, maybe just the rock star part, but, <laughs> but I, I, one thing I did when I was younger is I tried every possible angle. I tried uh, when I was in, let's see, I, right after I graduated, there was a work abroad program where US citizens could get work visas to a few countries. And so I went to London and I, I tried international law. I was fortunate and got a, a job at an international law firm. And it was fantastic, but I decided that's not quite what I wanted to do. And so uh, then I worked in Tunisia, North Africa on, a, on an economic development project during my master's program, which I absolutely love, but decided maybe not, uh, I, you know, working for an, and maybe I didn't want to work for an NGO. I think that probably that experience was very pivotal for me because in, I was evaluating a U.S. technology transfer project that educated Tunisians uh, in the US that was, and then in science and engineering with the notion that they would bring that science knowledge back to Tunisia. The US had done this in many countries, but this was the largest of its kind and considered a, a, a failure at the time because only a little over half had gone back. 
but to a person, so my job is to interview uh, students in the US and in Tunisia to find out what their experiences were and why people didn't go back. Um, and to a person, everybody said, I just wanna get ahead. I just want a job where I'm treated with fairness and I get ahead based on my merits and not based on who my cousin is. And that was a very powerful, you know, it sounds very simple, but it was a very powerful experience for me to just see again how rare it is to have a job where you get ahead based on your merits and how valuable that is. And we have those issues in the United States to be sure. Um, but that's what made me very interested in business is a focus of my career. Is that program still alive, uh, training? Um, yeah, unfortunately not. Uh, it was with IEE, uh, which was an international educational exchange program, and uh, they don't do that anymore. It was some years later that they, they ended that. I think it's with, I'm not sure exactly why, but yeah, that was a great program. It's wonderful to have more of those. It sounds interesting. Um, uh, about your passion, uh, what, what are you most passionate about? Uh, well, I guess, especially when it, you know, obviously my family, uh, I have a daughter and, you know, that's fantastic. I guess work-wise, I'm most passionate about, well, I, I probably am too serious in some ways, but I, I think about like, how can I make a difference? You know, I, I'm not sure why, but it, uh, yeah, this focus on why some countries are more developed than others, why some people are born into difficult situations while others are not, and how can we change that? That's, those are kind of the things I have thought about a lot over the years. Perfect. Um, can we talk about research now? Uh, yes. And uh, in research, how do you explain what you do and why you, your work is important to people who don't read your work regularly? Well, if I guess I was going to put it in, in those terms, I would say that peace is good for business and it's good for society. And then the background on what, how I got to that uh, notion is that I studied risk for so many years because when I was looking at factors that undermine development, one of the key characteristics of less developed countries is they tend to have a great deal of risk, political risk, economic risk, social risk. And I focused a great deal on that for many years and I still am. Uh, but then I also along the way became very interested in, you know, we study risk, but if we don't study the factors that create more peaceful environments and favorable environments for business, we won't, you know, it would be very difficult to understand how we get there, how, that, how a country changes from conflict affected to more peaceful and how do we understand that? And so, yeah, I really became very interested in uh, this notion of peace building and what role government, uh, what role businesses play. And uh, I think the peace dividend paper, there was a, in Northern Ireland during the, during the height of the conflict there, and it was when it was incredibly difficult to re resolve, obviously, for many years. One pivotal point was when uh, business associations in Northern Ireland got together and put together a document called the Peace Dividend Paper that showed how much the conflict was costing society in terms of lost, lost money. Uh, basically, they, they looked at the, all the money that went to you know, funding arms that could have gone to schools, the, the fact that they didn't could have gone to healthcare. And it reportedly had a, a major impact on how people thought about uh, the conflict and, and the society they wanted. So those are the kind of things I've been thinking about. And I think, you know, most people can relate to that idea, especially, unfortunately, especially today in almost every country, including the US, we see pieces, uh, you know, we sometimes we take it for granted if we've had it for a while and we see it can be lost very quickly, like we saw on January 6th. Sure. Uh, well, in my research, I find the top 18 countries in the world 
are the ones who have fought most wars, have been involved in more crisis, conflicts, military and political. So true, it is good for the society, peace, but uh, conflict actually has been um, one of the drivers, locomotives for these uh, rich countries. So um, let's talk about omitted variables or things that are underdeveloped, underutilized in IB research. What are some of the things under, uh, um, not underappreciated, but uh, omitted? Let's see, I guess I would say rather than a specific variable, I would suggest maybe it's, uh, and this is not just IB, maybe it's management and uh, strategy more generally too, but it's, it's the notion of what is a, a normative versus an instrumental idea. I think a lot of times we look at instrumental, uh, instrumental notion is when you look at the bottom line and it's supposed to be kind of value neutral, whereas normative ideas tend to, you know, are, are value laden and then therefore they're uh, considered more subjective. But I think that um, as we look at the role of business in society now, and as particularly there's, you know, we, we see that on the front page all of the time. And when I see you know, unfortunately, something like, uh, you know, we business schools, really, we all admi have admired McKinsey, and we say, why don't we all place our students there? It's a very prestigious placement. But then we have, you know, they just got fined $600 million for their role in promoting, helping uh, Purdue Pharma, uh, you know, promote opioid addiction, essentially, developing strategies that would make people more addicted over time. And so I think, you know, we often, as a, a, a in my opinion, I feel like I, you know, we, we have to, it's important to also not necessarily consider that a, an instrumental approach just simply because it's maximizing returns, but look at how can we rethink, uh, you know, the bottom line and is there a limit and how do we think about that in a way that doesn't get bogged down into kind of a value-based argument. So it's, uh, it's something that I'm still grappling with and thinking a lot about. And uh, I think that you know, we see a lot of interest in this whole idea of what role does business play when we look at Facebook and other companies. It's, it's not an easy question to be sure. Mm -hmm. And what are these um, interesting trends uh, that you see in the field? A PhD student comes to you and says, you know, I, I want to work on a dissertation. What is the uh, interesting field for the next five to 10 years? Uh, what, what, asking about the blue ocean, maybe it's the blue ocean. So uh, what would you say? What are the interesting areas to work in? Sure. Uh, one of the things that I, I definitely think is that students, uh, well, students often come in with great ideas and that the kind of the a main issue is how do you translate in, that into academic work? So sometimes I think you can actually come in with uh, really interesting ideas that may not have been introduced into the literature already. So there's an opportunity there to kind of talk to them about some of the things that maybe academics who've been working for a long time haven't been thinking about. Uh, but uh, having said that, I think some of the, the areas in the, in, and areas of development in IB have been looking at um, less developed countries to some degree, that's changed a lot over time. Uh, this idea of globalization and deglobalization uh, certainly is gonna be of great interest in the coming years and how it affects business strategy. Uh, and then I think uh, it's, you know, part of, I, I think it's very helpful to get students to kind of explore their own passions and interests. And that's very, can be stimulating for the people working with them as well. So, and not to lose sight of what brought them there. Thank you. Jennifer, about creativity in research. Um, 
I'm using people with great ideas, great papers. Uh, you have great papers yourself. Thank you. Uh, how do you come up with these in interesting topics? Interest where does creativity come from? Yeah. Uh, I, let's see. Well, you know, I, I guess it's just partly just exploring. I've learned from, uh, you know, been very interested in what other people are doing. That was very stimulating. I first got interested in this idea with my one of my co-authors, Kathy uh, Getz, who's now a dean at Loyola in, in Maryland, and Tim Fort, who's a professor in Indiana. And they were initially brought up these ideas of peace building. And at first, you know, it seems, wow, that's really, you know, uh, you know, it's hard to prod. That doesn't seem like something we normally study. And that's when I first began thinking about that about 15 or more years ago. Uh, and, and, but that it felt very, it, it felt so uh, different that it also feels very stimulating and creative and to think more about it. And when I started looking and realizing that actually a lot of uh, businesses and NGOs were working in that space already, that got me even more interested. And so I think uh, you know, exploring, constantly exploring new ideas that are already related to general topics that you're interested in is, you know, and looking beyond necessarily kind of academic articles as well as popular press and learning what's going on in the world and, and thinking about what is most, you know, is, a, is your own passion. Yes. About IB scholarship, uh, if you talk about an evolution in uh, IB scholarship uh, from past to the current and to the future, uh, but what can you say about uh, what did we lose? What did we gain along the way? And where are we going? Well, I think it's very exciting. I love, uh, I mean, I, AIB is such a stimulating organization with great people, great ideas. And we have benefit from the variety of fields that people come from too. So I think that's very exciting in terms of the directions. I mean, I can't help but look a little bit, you know, from my own, from management and strategy perspective, since that's where I, uh, you know, my base. But I think this idea of yeah, where the role of business and society, I think is only gonna get more attention because it's very complex and hard to answer. I, a lot of some studies have come out recently to show that CSR efforts are actually not, we, we rarely measure the impact of CSR efforts. And, um, and that's by, uh, let's see, Mike Barnett, Irene Enriquez, and I believe, uh, and I, I'm terrible at forgetting the last uh, author there, but. They, uh, they did an amazing study of, you know, uh, all CSRs, you know, papers looking at, you know, saying that they had impact and then looking at whether they did and find that hardly any do or uh, that the fact that we just don't measure that. So I think that's an interesting direction given the attention that CSR has. And uh, yeah, I guess I would say that. And then, you know, you never know. Some things that haven't gotten attention in a while may suddenly become much more interesting given whatever's happening in the world as well. What are you currently working on? Uh, let's see, I'm currently working on a, a book on climate adaptation. So as part of another risk that can you know, affect society. And so that's gonna be coming out in Cambridge Press this fall. I am also working on a couple of papers looking at how, uh, how do we better understand peace? If a, a country is in conflict, but starts moving towards a more peaceful environment, and how do we assess that as a potential investment location? What are the characteristics that might indicate it's going to be uh, a more attractive place or is it going to retreat back into conflict? And so those are some of the areas that I'm uh, working on directly at the moment. Beautiful. Thank you. Uh, about uh, advice, um, you, you mentioned Rich Pettis. What was the best advice you received from uh, Rich Pettis? 
Uh, he gave me one super, uh, well, many, but one that I remember the most is he suggested, he said, there's many smart people in the world, but you want to find the good people who are smart. And he said, you know, he really emphasized that a lot. And I think I've been very fortunate in all the co-authors that I've had and the people I've worked with have, I mean, it really has, I've lived that out. And I'm so glad to get that piece of advice to always think about it, not necessarily uh, look, to look at it in those terms. And that makes the whole process of writing so rewarding too, because the whole, just the doing the paper is really fun and, and collaborating with people you really like is great. So uh, I'm really fortunate that it's worked out that way. So. Uh, Jennifer, a bit um, with the junior faculty or uh, PhD students that you meet over the years, that you met over the years, um, what are some of the common mistakes that they do? Things that they do that you say, like, we don't do that. Uh, you know, this is not a good way to build a career. Uh, what are the things that you would say uh, uh, these are problems? So that, what, what's your advice to, to the young scholars? Uh, I guess one, one very valuable thing is just to get to know people and to make sure, you know, sometimes when people are first starting out, they feel ner nervous and, you know, reluctant to talk to people. And I think, uh, you know, the vast majority of people are going to be very receptive and especially at any IB, AIB conference I've been to, people are very receptive to talk. And if they can't talk at that moment, they'll be happy to schedule something. And I would never hesitate to reach out. Uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's probably the biggest problem. And then uh, or the biggest, you know, barrier that people may feel at that point in time. I think generally speaking, it's less about the methodological capabilities and things like that, that people are usually pretty well prepared and they leave their PhD programs. Um, the other thing is about the, at least it was also for me, the peer review process in journals, that can be a hard skill to crack. Uh, and it, it definitely is a skill in learning how to uh, respond to reviewers and you know, how do you interpret a review and getting advice from other people in terms of reading your papers as you're going along in the process. I think sometimes maybe people feel reluctant to let other people view their work and they're gonna think it's not good or they're not gonna look at the review and say, this is not great. But I think it's absolutely the opposite. People are very happy to help. And I think that was the thing I struggled with the most at the early on is just kind of understanding how to, you know, respond to reviewers and. Let's expand on that one. Uh, how should they expand? How should they respond to uh, reviewers? Uh, it's more about, I guess, just knowing what thing, the way you talk to the, you know, what, what the reviewers want to hear, just having a better understanding of what they want to hear, how you frame it. Now it seems like second nature. So it's when I'm looking back, I'm thinking, uh, you know, I guess I just, you know, it's a skill. It's a very much a skill, just like any kind of empirical method in terms of, you know, how do I respond? When do I, you know, what is the most important issue here? How do I address it? How can I go above and beyond what they're asking so that I, you know, make sure I've thoroughly addressed everything and done even more, show the reviewers respect because they've devoted a lot of time and most reviewers give a lot of, really give uh, good advice that's well-intentioned uh, and, I, I have to say that throughout, you know, every paper I really do is, you know, as long and hard as it might be, it is better at the end of a review process. So it's mm -hmm. more about, um, yeah, yeah. I think in some PhD programs, maybe there's a lot of training on that. We certainly had some in my program, but I felt like uh, maybe that's just the one thing that didn't come as natural as other things. So. 
how do you guys train people to respond to letters, to response letters? Uh, what's the for format? Uh, well, at the time I was in school, Jeff Edwards was teaching our methods class. So all the PhD students went through methods. And one of the things he did is he put forward his uh, letters that he had gotten back on some of his papers. And so then, you know, they would, it was fun to read because sometimes it also makes you feel better. And then maybe that's one good idea for PhD students, because then you see, well, everybody, you know, these scathing reviews with ultimately good papers, you know, often happen. And so how do you work with that and get from there to a publication? Um, how do you respond to something like that if you want to pursue the R&R? And then also just what do they want to hear? So that part got me really thinking a lot about those issues. I think, mm. um, but yeah, sometimes they're easier to respond to than others. So <laughs> I, I think, yeah, so it's easier to follow the advice than others, other times. Uh, sometimes the referee asks for more data, <laughs> new theory, new front end. And yeah, back exactly. <laughs> yeah, you have to think, do I want to, yeah, is this the one I should pursue or not? Um, well, for the sake of time, what is a question that I should have asked you but haven't? Uh, well, I think you've done a very good job. I'm not sure that I can think of one off the top of my head, but I think you covered a lot of space. I'm, I'm trying to think if there's anything. I, I, I can't think of anything at the moment that I that you should have asked, but um, let's see, to be, what about you? Any other topics that you're interested in? Uh, about, I would like to go back to the advice portion on, you say they are uh, the junior faculty and the patients are good in methodology. Um, there's this debate that uh, young people, young scholars should be involved in more theorizing and more theory writing and empirical, uh, although they go with the empirical papers first because the job market requires empirical papers first. I'm curious what you think about the new approach uh, they suggest that patients uh, should be working in theory building uh, front end because they are very fresh. They, the, the theories are fresh in their mind. They can make different connections and they are not um, limited by uh, seeking little gaps in, in, the, in the literature. Uh, what do you think, think about that? I think students need to understand where, uh, you know, where the literature has been and in order to contribute to it. So we, you know, that's a key part of the academic process, I think. But sometimes I think often we get so bogged down in the theory development that we lose sight of what's important in the research. So uh, I think there, and in fact, I think we're seeing that in, in many journals now where there's either opening more space for, you know, certainly ground uh, articles that are grounded in theory, but not necessarily uh, draw, you know, with the main point of contributing to theory development. So I think that actually we're seeing a trend a little bit, not away entirely from that, but with a broader range of options in terms of how you conduct your scholarship. And I think there's more interest in having, I think many people now uh, have an interest in having an impact on practice, whatever that means to them. Thank you so much for your time. I really enjoyed it. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. Okay. Thank you so much.